Last week in your bulletin, we included a one-page document for you outlining the core values of this fellowship that uh, the elders had derived over several months of study and prayer and those things that we believe the Lord has led us to that might really give direction and guidance to this ministry over the next decade to follow. We included those for you in your bulletin that you might have a copy of that. We'll put it in again next week for you. And just to remind you and those of you who were here last week to bring you up to speed, my intentions are to finish John 17 this week and next week, which is a huge task. So we're necessarily not going to be able to look under every leaf of the tree in this chapter. There's just a lot here, but we're not going to go into all of it. We're going to move through it looking at the big theme there because what I want to do is finish John 17, which is a nice breaking point in the gospel. We'll pick it up again later in chapter 18 when the crucifixion narrative really begins. So this is a, this is a good seam here in this gospel to stop. And uh, what I want to do is I'm actually going to take a little vacation the uh, first Sunday in August, so I will be out then. But when I get back, we're going to begin going through those uh, core values, those five core values. Uh, We'll provide a five-week sermon series to take us through, and and I want to explore them in greater detail with you from the Scriptures and, and kind of lead you as a congregation in the process by which the elders traveled uh, the path that we traveled to, to uh, bring us to those, um, those statements for you. So that's kind of the plan uh, that stretches out before us. That will take us into September. And uh, by God's grace, that's where we're going. Several uh, years ago, I guess it was a number of years ago, there was a, uh, there was a popular trend in, uh, in evangelicalism, and such as uh, the nature of evangelicalism these days, I suppose, that uh, bracelets began appearing on people's wrists. And they were, uh, these bracelets had these initials, WWJD, uh, on them. And I can remember seeing them and wondering to myself, I wonder what in the world that means. And uh, why everybody's wearing these bracelets. Well, of course, we all know WWJD means what would Jesus do, right? And so that, that became very popular. It, it um, actually spawned a, a huge industry. It, the uh, WWJD began to appear on things like coffee mugs and T-shirts and keychains. And, and believe it or not, I went on the Internet to look this week. And uh, on eBay, they, uh, you know, the online auction site, they had some WWJD cigarette lighters. <laughs> and uh, I, I actually thought they were mislabeled. They should have been WWJS. Right? What would Jesus smoke? Um, but, but anyway, they were WWJD cigarette lighters. You could have bought them on eBay. 40 minutes left on the auction. Uh, and my bid, I just got it in too slow, you know. So I missed, I missed out. But anyway, I mean, the idea behind the bracelet, you know, we know was that the various situations in life, the idea was to ask yourself, what would Jesus do in that situation? And then uh, you were supposed to respond in like manner. So I think the, the idea behind it was certainly noble to begin with. Well, I've, I've, I'm doing a knockoff on that this morning. And so I've entitled this WWJP, What Would Jesus Pray? What Would Jesus Pray? You know, 
Luke uh, chapter 5, verse 16, it says that uh, Jesus, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. That was, that was the pattern of his life. He was a man of prayer. But as we pointed out a couple of weeks ago when we began John 17 together, the Bible tells us really uh, comparatively little about what his prayers were like. What exactly did he, did he pray about and what did he say when he prayed? Fascinating concept to think about. I mean, we have little little uh, snippets and hints. We're told in Luke 6, 12 that, uh, that Jesus prayed for his disciples before he chose them. So we don't know again exactly what he prayed for them, but he did wrestle in prayer, the Bible says, all night before he chose those disciples. Matthew 19, 13 tells us that Jesus prayed for little children. They would come to him and, uh, and he would pray for them. We do know in Luke 22, 32 that Jesus prayed specifically for Peter that Satan would not break him. And we know from uh, Paul's writings in Romans 8.34 and then the Hebrews 7.25 that Jesus is now praying intercessorily, on an intercessorly, that's not even a word, as an intercessor for us from his position at the right hand of the Father. So we know a little about what Jesus prayed, but the amazing thing is that John 17 which we have before us here, is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. So this gives us an amazing glimpse at what Jesus would pray about at an important moment in his life. This prayer occurring here at the end of, the, of his time there in the upper room, I, I believe he's on the way now um, to, Geth- or not, uh, yes, to Gethsemane and and he's voicing this prayer, perhaps even as he's walking along with his disciples. Maybe, maybe, maybe not, but, but certainly that could fit within the context here. We know that uh, these are the things that occupied him in the, in, the, in the waning moments of his life. He knows that the cross is right there in front of him. Soon he will be arrested. Soon he will be subject to, to the incredible abuse and uh, and uh, hatred of the mob that will be put upon him. Soon he will feel the weight of the Father's wrath or the sin of his people placed upon him. Soon there will be forced from his lips those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if there is, you know, what he's going to pray about now is, should be of maximum interest to us. What are the things that occupy, what would Jesus pray about in these waning moments? And we have it here for us. Again, as I said a few weeks ago, I believe that the reason this is recorded for us is to teach us something about prayer. I believe that Jesus prayed this in front of his disciples, that they heard him pray it under inspiration, they recorded it for us. And among many things, uh, certainly it it's, has a teaching place for the people of God. So here, let me read for you John 17. And then let's delve in. Beginning in verse 1. These things Jesus spoke. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Even as you have given him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you have sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Stop there. If we were to finish the rest of this chapter, which we will do next week, really here from verses 6 through the end of the chapter, verse 26, there are five observations that I think we can legitimately make here from Jesus' prayer priorities. Five observations. We're going to look at three of them together this morning, the other two next week. But there are five observations that we can make from Jesus' prayer priorities here in this text so that we might ha- learn how to pray effectively. You want to pray effectively? You want Jesus to answer your prayers? You want to pray and know that you have locked into the eternal purposes of God the Father? So that when you communicate with him in prayer, things happen. I don't know about you, but that kind of opportunity excites me. The chance to pray like Jesus prayed. The chance to pray with that kind of precision. To know that we are praying in accordance with the Father's will. I think it's available to us right here in this text. And I think as we look through these observations together... Our prayer life can be transformed if we will but apply some of what we can learn from this. So here, first observation for you is in verses 6 through 10. My observation is that Jesus certifies the disciples' identity. Jesus certifies the disciples' identity. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that, is that Jesus here speaks back to the Father and, and confirms who these men really are. And the way he does that gives us incredible insight into the work of the triune God and the redemption of mankind. Take a look first at verse 6 and notice what he says. I manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. 
Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Notice it is that he's immediately focusing this prayer upon a certain group of men. In fact, when you get down to verse 9, he specifically says, I'm not praying on behalf of the whole world. I'm not asking these things for the whole world. I'm asking these things for a specific group of people. A group of people whom you have given. People that belong to you. People that you have given to me out of the world. These are the people that belong to God, he says. Belong to him in the most profound of ways. Beloved, what we're talking about when we jump right into this is the whole issue of God's predestinating election. That these are a group of men that that belong to God in a way different from the way that the, the world in general belongs to God. Notice the possessive way that they're described here in verse 6. Men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, you gave them to me. These are men who belong to God. Belong to God. And they belonged to God before they were given to Jesus, verse 6 tells us. So we are most definitely looking backwards The curtain is being pulled back and we're getting a glimpse into the eternal purposes of God. The issues of election. Things that are so deep, so heavy, so difficult to understand that they go way beyond the human ability to wrap our minds around them. We can only fall before them in worship. We declare what the Bible declares and dare to go no further. These are the ones given by God. You know, it's funny, over in uh, Acts chapter 18 and verse 10, don't turn there, but the Apostle Paul is, in his missionary journeys, is arriving at Corinth. And he's had a string of disappointments in his early church planting activities. He's been driven out of a number of cities. He's even been stoned. And he arrives there in Corinth, and and he's discouraged. And he's fearful about what's going to happen there. And God appears to him, and an amazing thing God says to him, he says, Paul, do not be afraid. Go on and preach boldly in this city, for I have many people in this city. Now that's an incredible statement because the gospel has just begun to come to this city. can't possibly be talking about believers. He can only be talking about those who, by the sovereign grace of God, have been chosen before the foundation of the world to respond affirmatively to the gospel when it is delivered to them. These are the ones who belong to the Father, again, verse 6 here, who have been given to the Son. And they have kept your word, he says. They have kept your word. They have shown themselves to be faithful to you. They have listened. They have heard. I have made your name manifest to them. Again, verse 6, that is, that I have revealed to them the name relating to the character of God. I have shown them who you are. I've shown them your attributes. I've shown them your character. I've revealed to them your eternal plan of redemption in, in me, the Messiah. And they have embraced it all. They have kept your word. You read that statement and you have to stop and scratch your head for a minute. You have to say, well, wait a minute. This is the 11 he's talking about, right? Yes. But wait, I thought I read in Luke's gospel that uh, there in the upper room, 
They were arguing with one another about who would have first place in the kingdom. Yeah, they were. I thought these were the ones that when they walked into that upper room to begin the the Last Supper, that not a one of them would stoop low enough to wash anybody's feet, including the masters. Yeah, that's the ones. I thought these were the ones who, who so frequently failed to understand. In fact, the very one back here in John 14, verse 9, where Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you that you have not come to know me, Philip? Yep, that's the ones. Are these the ones that are going to deny him and, and flee from him in his, in his hour of need? Yep, that's the ones. Are these the ones who their chief spokesman, Peter, in a moment of crisis is going to deny him? Yep, that's the ones. So wait a minute, Jesus. They have kept your word. What is he saying? What is he he communicating here? Beloved, what he's communicating here is an incredible measure of hope for you and me. The hope that is built into this passage, that in these weak and vacillating men, Jesus sees true faith. He sees within these ones who so frequently make shipwreck of their lives, men who truly do believe, men who truly have clung to him, men who have kept his word, Not in the sense of some legal accounting where Jesus has added up their deeds of obedience and their deeds of disobedience and and found the obedience to be greater than the disobedience and said, okay, well, I guess you did keep it after all. That's not what's going on. It's that he's looking straight down into their hearts. And he's saying that these are, are people who love God, treasure his word, and want to follow and obey him. The issue is direction, not perfection, of their lives. As I told you, this is a verse of great hope. This is a statement of incredible hope. Because this is a statement that that relates to me. When I fall down, when I vacillate, when I flinch in the face of danger, these are the ones who have kept your word, the elect. These are the ones whom you have chosen out, Father. These are the ones whom you have given to me. And now they have come to know, verse 7, everything you have given to me is from you. The words, verse 8, which you have given me, I have given to them. They received them. They have truly understood them. They understand that I came forth from you and they believe that you have sent me. They have embraced the truth. Their lives have been changed. I mean, in contrast to their countrymen, they they stand out. They are head and shoulders above them, right? It'll only be a matter of a few hours when when the rest of the nation will say, crucify him, away with him, give us Barabbas. We'd rather have a murderer, an insurrectionist. We don't want this guy, Jesus. These are the ones who have come to understand that standing before them is God in flesh. An amazing paradigm shift, by the way, for a monotheistic Jew. Hmm? One who would die rather than give up the notion of the one God. They have come to a conclusion now that, yes, there is only one God, and he is standing before me in human flesh. Yeah, they've come to know me. 
They've come to understand me. It's not perfect. It's not complete. There's a lot of rough edges. There's a lot of holes in their theology, but they have come to the basic commitment of who I am and they have exercised saving faith in me and my pers- as a person and in my mission to spread this message. These are the choice ones. Verse 9, and I ask on their behalf. My prayer is limited to them. Not that God doesn't love the world. John 3.16 tells us He loves the world. He does love the world, beloved, but He loves His own in a special way. With a special kind of love. With a redeeming love that is certain to come to its fruition. Do not ask on their behalf. Or I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the world. I only ask on behalf of those whom you have given me because they are yours. They are yours. And Jesus begins to talk about this reciprocal relationship here in verse 10, right? All things are, that are mine are yours. Yours are mine. I've been glorified in them. That is in these disciples. These disciples belong to you, Father. They belong to me. What we have, we have in common. Because I and the Father are one, Jesus said earlier. These are the ones whom you have given me. So what does this teach us about prayer? What can we learn about prayer from this priority? I mean, Jesus is here praying in these final moments. There's only so much time, right? Judas and the authorities are on the way. They're going to come and get him soon. Yet he spends his time talking about the elective grace of God. Why? Because it's so critical to understand. So critical to understand and affirm God's elective grace, beloved. It is the source of all that we have spiritually. It is the certainty of our salvation. It is the glorification of of God the Father. So how do I apply this? Well, one way that I can apply this is that it is by God's uh, understanding of God's elective grace that allows me to go into His presence and know that when I pray on behalf of His people, I am praying in accordance with His will. John says over in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have before Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. When I go into the presence of God and I ask for the spiritual benefit of His people, His His chosen ones, I know that God is inclined to hear that prayer. He's committed. He's committed to His own glory through the sanctification of His chosen people. Beyond that, I know that when I go before God in prayer and I recall His redemptive plan, His elective grace, I know that I bring incredible praise and honor and glory to Him. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul begins that great book, and he begins it with prayer there, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God, or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Then He goes on and on to describe God's elective plan. Let me ask you a question. When you go to God in prayer, do you take time to praise Him for His sovereign election? 
Do you take time to recount before Him this incredible plan of salvation that is not dependent upon the fickleness of human nature, but that is fully rock-solid, assured upon the elective grace of God who will bring to pass that which He has foreordained? Do you praise Him for such things? It glorifies Him when you do. It magnifies Him when you do. It will, it will invigorate your prayer life to come before Him and to praise Him in such fashion. Second observation that we can draw from this prayer of Christ. This is in verses 11 through 16. What I would say there is that Jesus guards the disciples' fidelity. Observation, Jesus guards the disciples' fidelity. His departure here is at hand. Look, notice verse 11, what he says. I am no more in the world, present tense. It is such a certainty in his mind that, that, he, that he's leaving that he can say that I am no more in the world. It's going to be a few hours still until he's actually dead. But, he, but as far as he's concerned, I'm not here anymore. Yet they themselves are in the world. They're still here. Jesus is, is in his glory through the cross, returning to the right hand of the Father. But they have to remain. There is a mission for them. And so he requests something of the Father here in verse 11. Do you see it? Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. We could perhaps summarize this kind of a prayer request to say, Father, I'm going to the cross here in a little while. And on that cross, I'm going to bear the sin of your people. I'm going to die. I'm going to endure the wrath, the accumulated wrath of Almighty God against the wickedness of a people for all time. I'm going to be slightly busy. Take care of them for me, will you? While I'm not there to take care of them, take care of them for me. Guard them as I have guarded them. Keep them in the truth that w- with which they have already adhered. Let them not wander away. Do not let them be broken. Keep them in your name. It is in the inheritance of your character, the character you've given me. Protect them. Preserve them. Keep their fidelity to that which they know about you. End of verse 11, so that they may be one, even as we are one. That they might have unity as they cling to the truth they've known. Verse 12, Jesus says, when I was with them, I was doing this, right? I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. Not one of them perished. Throughout my ministry with them, Father, I was guarding their fidelity. I kept them faithful to you. But I need you to do it for me for now. So I'm entrusting them into your care. We see an illustration, by the way, of Jesus' guarding of these uh, 
these disciples over here in uh, chapter 18. You can look... Um, Oh, where do we want to find it? Uh, verse 8. The authorities come to arrest Jesus. But they're also looking to round up the whole band. And, and Jesus skillfully manipulates the authorities and, and says, Whom are you seeking? And gets them to, to say, Just you. Verse 8, Jesus said, I told you that I am He. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. That the word might be fulfilled which He spoke of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. See, while they're in the world, Jesus was guarding them. There in the garden, He also is able to guard them. But what He's saying here in this prayer is that on the cross, I'm not going to be able to guard them. So you take care of them for me, Father. Hold on to them. Do not let them break. Do not let them break. Father, I have given them your word, verse 14. The world's hated them. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. Keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They are my disciples. They, they, they have followed me they, and, and I've given them your word and, and they are embracing your word, Father. But don't take them out of the world. That's not the way I want you to guard them. I mean, it would be easy, wouldn't it? Think about it that way. What's the best way to protect the endurance of a follower of Jesus Christ? How about the moment he's saved? Why don't you just take him to glory and be done with him? Sure would make it easier, wouldn't it? I don't know about you, but if I'd have gotten raptured the moment after I trusted Christ, there'd be a whole lot of junk in my life that wouldn't have happened. So from our perspective, that looks like maybe that might be the thing to do. But notice that he specifically doesn't say that about them. He, doesn't say, he says, I don't want you to take them home to be with you. That, that's not what I mean when I say I want you to watch over them, guard them, cause them to endure. What I want you to do is I want you to keep them right in the world and protect them while they're there. Satan is going to try to break them. I've been guarding them all this time. Father, I'm handing them off to you. You guard them too. You guard them too. Because they have a mission. They have a mission to fulfill. You know, the peop there have been people of God who have asked to be taken out of the world. Moses asked God to take him. Elijah asked God to take him. Jonah asked God to take him. And in every single case, God said, Why? No. Not a chance. Okay? I've got something for you to do. I've got something for you to do. You have a mission to fulfill, he said to them individually. And he says to the disciples here, they have a mission to fulfill. And beloved, he says to us, we have a mission to fulfill. God will not take us out of the world. He will keep us from the evil one in the world for the purpose of fulfilling the mission he's given to us. So how do we apply this observation in regard to our own prayer life? 
Well, I think one way to do it is we can pray for the protection and the perseverance of fellow believers. If we know that God is committed to leaving believers in the world and to protecting them from the world, that they might continue to be his witness to the world, then we fall into good company with Jesus if we just focus our prayers upon that. We like to pray intercessorily for people, right? We like to to pray for their needs, but what we tend to pray for is their temporal, physical needs. But if we were to pray along these lines for their perseverance, then we would really begin to lock into the purposes of God. Let me uh, me try to illustrate this for you from uh, Romans chapter 15. Verse 30 to the end of the chapter. Paul's urging the church at Rome. He says, verse 30, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I might come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Pray with me, labor with me, beloved. He tells the Roman church, church at Rome there, labor with me in prayers that God would deliver me from those who would seek to break me so that I might prove faithful to the task which I have, which is to bring the gospel to the world. Pray for my deliverance. Pray for my perseverance. Pray for my protection so that I might fulfill the ministry that God has given me to do. You want to pray for missionaries? Pray for their endurance. Pray for their protection. Pray for their ministry to the people whom God has sent them. Furthermore, we can can pray also that that God's grace would, would draw believers to the truth, right? Jesus has said, keep them, Father, in the truth. Guard them in the truth the way I have guarded them. So we can pray in similar fashion. Again, just an example over in Galatians. So I was thinking about some of these prayer principles. I said to myself, can I find examples of these in the New Testament? I think I can. There, the, you know, the, the church at, at Galatia, their problem was that they were falling away from the gospel. They were pulling back from the gospel of grace. And, and Paul has labored away in this letter to draw them back to the truth. And, and now here at the end of the letter, verse 18, chapter 6 of Galatians, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. What is he saying? He's saying here is that may the grace of God draw you back to all that I have written previously in this letter. Jesus has protected the disciples' fidelity to the truth. He entrusts them to the Father to do the same while He's unavailable on the cross. Beloved, when we pray, we can pray in a similar fashion. Father... Cause these ones to be faithful to the truth. Protect these ones from those who would seek to break their faith. Draw them back. These are the kind of prayers that interest God. These are the prayers of eternal significance. 
And that leads us to our last observation that I want to make from this section this morning, and that's in verses 17 through 19. And Jesus makes a direct request here for the disciples' sanctity, for their sanctification. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify. Hagiadzo, make them holy. Set them apart. Father, set them apart for you. Make them holy that they might carry out the ministry that they have been given to do. Sanctify them, Father. These are the ones whom you have chosen from before the foundation of the world. These are the ones that belong to you. These are the ones that you have given to me. These are the ones to whom I have revealed your eternal plans and purposes. These are the ones who have by faith embraced those things. Father, work in them and drive the world out of them so that they might represent you. I'm going back to the Father. I'm coming home, he I'm going to be at your right hand. No longer am I going to be in the world representing you among mankind. It is going to be them. Sanctify them, Father. Make them holy. Set them apart for this task. Separate them. And do it through the truth. You see it, verse 17? Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, it is the revelation of you that is the means by which you will set them apart. It is that as they grow in degree of love and obedience to your word that they will be set apart. Remember, these are the ones that are not of the world, verse 16, as I'm not of the world. They still live in the world, but these are the ones that have been called out of the world. And, and these are the ones... Through whom, verse 18, that your message is going to go out into the world. These are my representatives. So sanctify them through your word. There's a fascinating flow of logic that runs through this. Let me see if I can outline this for you. And this, uh, this has huge implications, beloved, for believers of every age. Jesus, look at verse 14. Jesus said, I have given them your word. You see that? Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus had done nothing but give the word of God to the followers, to his followers. Now, here in verse 17, at the moment of his departure, he, he asked the Father to use that word to sanctify them, to set them apart, to make them holy. And then down to verse 20, we haven't got there yet, but there in verse 20, he's going to ask on behalf of you and I that we also might continue in that same word, that is their word. If we were to turn back to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus would then give that commission to all of us to take that word out into the world and make further disciples. So there's this process of Jesus gave it to them, right? The Father will retain them in it. They will in turn give it to us through the writings of the New Testament, and then we will in turn take it to others. And so through this whole process, it is the Word of God. It's like beads on a necklace. 
As the Word of God is applied to people's hearts and lives, it will set them apart. It will make them holy. And it will make them holy for a purpose, verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. God does not make us holy so that we might sit around in a state of holiness. So that we might not enter into the holiness club. Right? I'm going to save you. I'm going to make you holy. And then what I want you to do is all go together. And I want you to go to this little place and build a wall around yourself so nothing gets in to contaminate you. And then I want you to sit there and be holy. Right? That's not what he says. Right? Verse 18 again. Father, you have sent me into the world. I am sending them into the world. But the church so often looks like the holiness club. So often the church looks like we want to keep those on the outside who might contaminate us by contact out there. And then what we'll do is stand up on the wall and we'll shout down to them, be saved. Right? Flee from that evil generation. But don't come in here. Don't come in here. Notice that's exactly opposite. Do you see the connection here in 17 and 18? Sanctify them in the truth so that I can send them out into the world. Set them apart so that they go out and they carry on the ministry that I have carried on for you. There is a, there is a task to be discharged here and it is going to be discharged through them. But, but make them holy so that they can do it. Don't make them holy so that they can stew in it. Verse 19, Jesus says, For their sakes I have sanctified myself. That is, that I have set myself apart. I think he's talking about the cross here. That they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I'm going to go all the way to the cross to make this thing a reality, a certainty. So how do we apply this piece of this prayer to our own prayer lives? Well, how about this? How about if you pray for me? Okay, I'm asking for your prayers now. How about if you pray for me that the Word of God would so work in my heart to cleanse and purify me that I would be more effective in the service for God? That's my prayer request for you, for you to pray for me. And you know what? I'll pray the same thing for you. You say, Pastor, will you pray for me? I will pray for you. And what I will pray for you is is that the Word of God would so work in your hearts to purify you, to sanctify you, to set you apart so that you would go out into the world and do the ministry, carry on the mission that Jesus Christ began. How's that? And again, I, I think I'm in pretty good company when I say that because if you'll go with me over to Colossians 1... Verse 9. Paul's writing, by the way, to a church that he never visited. Okay? But he still prayed for them. 
He says, For this reason also since the day, verse 9, chapter 1, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How's that for a prayer request? Okay. The Apostle Paul says, ever since we heard you came to faith, we have not ceased praying for you. And what we have prayed for you is that you would continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That is sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. We have not ceased to pray that you would grow in your understanding of who God is. That the word of God would just fill your heart so that you would be useful in service to him. That's a prayer request that God answers. That's the kind of prayer request God answers. Beloved, repeatedly through this section of John 17, Jesus has focused upon the Word of God. He's focused upon the Word of God as that which has created the disciples. He's focused on the Word of God that that is what protects the disciples. That The Word of God is that which sanctifies the disciples. Now maybe you're here this morning and no one has ever really opened the Word of God with you. Maybe no one has ever taken the time to, to show you personally from the Word of God how you can become disciple of Jesus Christ, how you can fall in line with this long history of faithfulness, like a relay race with a baton passed from runner to runner to runner. Maybe when no one has ever shown you from the scriptures how you can be made right with God, how your sin, wickedness, rebellion can be dealt with can be cleansed the cross of Jesus Christ. If that's true, then we have someone who can help you. At the end of this service, as we sing, there'll be some folks that will be standing over there by that lighted cross. You come to them. We're not make a big thing out of it, but we want you to come down there. And they want to open the, the Scriptures with you. They want to show you how you too can have life everlasting. For those of you who are already a follower of Jesus Christ, as we have moved rapidly through, admittedly rapidly, we've skipped over many things, but as we have moved through this section of Jesus' high priestly prayer, we've made a number of observations. I trust that these observations are helpful to you in revitalizing your prayer life. That you might lock into the eternal purposes of God. And then when you pray, you can pray with a confidence knowing he hears and he answers. Let's pray.